Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Hey there, world. You're listening to Cool Thing Presents with myself, Luke Branch, and my compadre, Hayley Hill. Say hello, Hayley. Hello. That was very nice. Uh, We're so lucky lucky today because we've got one of my good friends uh, and one of the best PR people in the entire world. We have Emma Van Dytes from Public City PR. How you doing, Emma? Oh, I'm fine. Thanks. That was a really nice intro. Oh, thanks. Uh, that was my uh, tea falling over, listeners. Um, oh. We are recording at home. Uh, probably one of the last times that we will, I expect, because the world's opening back up, which is lovely. Uh, but uh, how was your day? All, all right today? Uh, Emma, you good? Yeah, good. You know, putting out fires left, right and centre as usual. But, um, but Not literally, yeah. I hope. No, no, not literally. Figuratively, absolutely. But uh, yeah, no. As Ice Cube says, today was a good day. Cool. Oh Hayley, you had a good one? I've had a good one, and I love that quote. That's a good quote. <laughs> Emma, I just wondered, um, for uh, those out there that don't know what you do, if you could just give us a brief synopsis of your world right now. What do you do? Um, well, I'm a music publicist, and um, I guess the long and short of it is that I get bands in magazines and make them famous, <laughs> or try to make them famous at least, you know? Sounds like a cool job. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. It's pretty great. Um, I've done it for, I was I was figuring this out earlier, and this is my 28th year working in the music industry, which is nuts. I assume that this is probably, the 28th year has probably been the most challenging. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, I think it's been, all the COVID stuff's just been tough on everyone, hasn't it, really? So totally. it's kind totally. of roll with the punches and just, you know, do what you can, I think. Keep I think putting those fires out. Yeah, exactly. We've all been all been um, very tested Damn uh, right. you know, Damn in right. this time. But, you know, light at the end of the tunnel, fingers crossed, touch wood and, you know. Glass half full, glass half yes, full, glass half exactly. full. Yeah, positive PMA. mental attitude. Yeah. <laughs> PMA. Yeah, always got that PMA. So how does a uh, lovely human being like yourself transition from being just a regular child with normal interests into uh, a sort of Yoda type figure for uh, publicity, for rock and roll, <laughs> hip hop and the rest? How did you make uh, your first steps into that direction? Um, well, I read a magazine article when I was 11 that was in like, it was like Just 17 or Smash It's or one of those mags. And it was all about like people who had different careers and there was an interview with someone who was a, a PR. And up until that point, I was kind of like dead set on becoming a journalist because I loved Smash It's and I wanted to write for Smash It's. That was like the, the goal, right? I'm 11 at this point. <clears throat> and um, so I read this article and I was like, that's the perfect mixture of both. You get to work with the bands and you get to talk to the magazines. So from that point, 
I became a little obsessed with like finding out what a publicist did and what have you. So I told my dad that that's what I was going to do. My dad's like, get your head out of the clouds because at that point, all I cared about was skateboarding and hip hop and <laughs> gangster rap in particular. And uh, perfect for an like, 11 year old. <laughs> right. And I was like, I'm going to show you, you know, my dad was nothing but encouraging, like, you know, RIP, but um, he pushed me to sort of work hard. And then we moved back to England because um, at that point I'd, I lived in South Africa for 10 years when I was a kid, five to 15, which were tough um, years, but we moved home. And then I was already, my education was further than like A-level equivalent. So I didn't really know what to do with me. So I did this back in like 1993, there was a YTS scheme, a youth training scheme that the government had. And you could go and do basically like a, a paid apprenticeship Um, in places and I already knew obviously what I wanted to do so I did like this business administration um, course I was like typing and all that shit and I thought well that would be good if I want to go the journalism route and what have you and then they had um, uh, work experience placements at record labels so I was like this is my way in you know so I got a work experience placement at uh, East West Records which is uh, part of the uh, WEA family, so it was Warner Electro Atlantic at that time. And I worked in the promotions department, um, TV promotions department and radio promotions. So I was I was making tea and printing off labels and, you know, ordering NTSC, you know, conversions and like, you know, tapes and stuff like that for to do mail outs and things. And um, and that's what got me my start in music. So I had a three-month work experience. And I was obviously doing a good job and they liked me. So they extended it to six and then they extended it to nine. And at this point, I'm like, am I going to get a job? I was in at the time, you know, like, you know, 16. Um, they paid your travel and stuff like that. So, you know, it was all right. There was a little bit of money that came out of it. Um, but at that time, um, it was when Death Row was part of, um, of uh, East West Records. So that it was a hive of activity and like, you know, some incredible music was coming out at that time. Like, you know, not only were, you know, I wasn't personally working with these bands. I was just the intern, but, um, you know, it, it was, you know, Snoop Dogg was, you know, was about to blow up. Um, and, uh, Doggy Style was about to come out and, um, and so I was kind of surrounded by all of that. And then things like D-Ream, like, you know, things that can only get worse. Like, that was, like, the big hit. And then they had, like, Stone Temple Pilots and Tori Amos and Chris Rea and, like, you know, um, Whale. You remember that band, Whale? It's a hobo something disco, babe, right? Hobos, hobo humping slobo, babe. There you That's go. right. Sorry, yeah. I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the hell I said. Yeah. So there was this real, like, diverse you know, Ross and they did lots of soundtracks and stuff. So I was, I was having an absolute ball at that point. So that was like my, my entry point was, was then. And I, you know, I was 16, which wow. is kind of nuts. What know? an experience for a 16 year old. If you want to hear it. So oh, yeah. Good. A good Snoop Dogg story. If you want to hear it. Always. Okay, so, <laughs> so, um, so doggy style was, you know, on the schedule and I get called up to the managing director of Warner's office. And I was like, 
what have I done wrong? I was, <laughs> I was like, oh my God, what have I done? So I went and call up to his office and he's like, I've got, I've got something for you to do. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. What is it? And he's like, this is the DAT tape of the Snoop Dogg record. He's like, I need you to get in a car with this security guard and go down to tape to tape as the company was called at that point. And you have to sit in a room by yourself. The door has to be locked and you have to make X amount of copies of this album onto cassette. Like with this wall of like cassette tapes that, you know, they would just oh load them God. up with blank tapes and you make, you know, copies of it. And I had a list of people that these, these tapes were all made for and each tape had to have their name on it, right? So I go to this place and I get to sit in this room and listen to the record before anyone else at the label oh in the UK, goodness. which was kind of cool, <laughs> you know? Um, so I make all these copies and I've got them all logged to, for everyone's names and I have to go around and everyone has to sign for their copy. I mean, this was like watermark CDs, you know, but back in 93, this is what they did, you know? And, um, you know, and I'm going around to everyone, getting them to sign for their copy and everyone's like, how is it? I'm like, amazing. <laughs> Describe it to me. Yeah, so I was like, you know, and also because I was so into hip hop at that point. I mean, I still am, obviously. Um, but you know, I was, a, you know, massively, massively into hip hop at that time, and um, so it was such a huge honor for me to be able to do that and to experience that as a a sixteen year old intern, you know. <clears throat> and uh, so I always get excited to think about shit. Man, I heard that record before anyone else did in the UK. That's pretty damn cool. <laughs> That must have been such an exciting. I mean, like that record's a classic, isn't it? Yeah. and it, you know, would, am I right in thinking the Chronic was the year before? Yeah, Chronic was '92. Were you yeah. a fan? Of, of oh that? yeah, massive. I mean, I'm such a massive NWA fan, so yeah, right. um, you know, to go from you know like doing that, and then obviously Dre doing his own thing was mm. you know was massive. But but Snoop came into the office. Um, I guess he got kicked out of the hotel. Right. <laughs> I probably found some paraphernalia. Um, and he and the dog pound were all in, in the office. And Shane O'Neill, who is an absolute legendary music publicist, he was their publicist at um, East West Records. And so they were all sitting in his office and any other place there was a spare desk or a spare, you know, bit of space to sit while the hotel situation was sorted out. And I have a, had a uh, public enemy baseball jersey that was over the back of my chair. And Snoop's like, who sits there? And I was like, me. And he's like, you like PE? I was like, favorite band. He's like, all right. You know, and then we got chatting and stuff and, and you know, we were talking about hip hop and yada, yada. So I asked him to sign a black and white uh, picture for me. And uh, he, he looked at me, he's like, he's like, Emma with two M's. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, my auntie's name is Emma. And I was like, <laughs> and he wrote this picture. He says, uh, to Emma, it's all good. 94, Snoop Doggy Dog. And I have that framed and in my office. Oh, beautiful. Oh, amazing. Super nice. And they were all lovely. And I made them tea and got them orange juice. And they're very happy. <laughs> just, to, uh, just to stoke the fires of, of the youth that may be listening, that may be dreaming of wonderful future careers. <laughs> Emma now does uh, press for Public Enemy, so uh, I do. you know uh, I doff my cap uh, over Zoom to you right now for that. Uh, <laughs> so, so so yeah. that you know that was 
that's a huge thing for me to be to be their publicist and to work with Chuck D. And you know, I think last year when their last record came out, Chuck and I were doing Zooms for about seven hours a day <laughs> for a couple of weeks. And at one point, he was doing some interview with um, what was he doing with Nihal or you know, or I think it was Nihal he was doing the interview with. And I was on mute, and you know, you couldn't see my face on the camera. I'm sitting there eating my dinner, watching them do interviews and just, and just being like, how is this my life? Like, this is insane. If you told me when I was, you know, when I was 11, you know, or even, you know, when I was 16 and just starting out that, you know, give it some time and this is what's going to happen. I would never have believed you. And it did. And it's, I think that just goes to show that like what hard work and integrity can do, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I had a similar moment when we worked with Albini, I suppose, mm. but um, back to Public Enemy because it's much uh, more, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, fresh. <laughs> uh, my, my dad was an art teacher and all of his students were like uh, listening to all the records uh, between the first one and uh, Music and Our Message. So like mm. that, that kind of little run of records and they were always in our house. And I, I heard more of that music than I did anything else, just that kind of era of hip hop, but particularly Public Enemy. My dad was a big fan and um, such original music, isn't it? It's just, it, there's nothing like it in the history, in the history of music mm. like like that. It's so fresh the way they sounded. I, yeah, I still... no, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but um, they were such and are such an important band in my life, not just for the music, but for the message, you know? like. I you know, know. As, as a kid, I, you know, like I said, I spent 10 years in South Africa and, you know, I was, I was very lucky in the respect that my parents were, um, you know, were, were pretty active in the anti-apartheid, um, you know, movement. And, you know, we had a lot of black friends growing up and, you know, surrounded myself with people of all cultures. And I thank my parents for that. Um, but, you know, living in South Africa, at the height of apartheid, and you're listening to bands like Public Enemy, who are teaching you, you know, that was like, that's the best history lesson I ever got, yeah. you know, was picking up those records and, you know, just trying to understand, you know, from some kind of perspective, just try and understand like, you know, and, and then be outspoken about it with my friends and my peers when I was a kid and growing up, you know, you think like the kind of <clears throat> the, you know, mid to late eighties in Johannesburg, <laughs> it's like, you know, it was not the nicest place in the world to be. So, I had them, they were my history teachers and um, and I'm, I'm forever grateful for that. And I, and I told Chuck this too and oh, he's like, good. He's like, well, then at least I reached you, you know? So I was like, Pfft. Educated by humble. Um, before I hand over to uh, Helenium, I'll just, uh, <laughs> one final, final question because I'm interested just, uh, you know, kind of, so it seemed like hip hop was kind of up front and center was, was rock something that kind of came into your world through the job or were you, did you have like a kind of parallel love for rock and heavy rock or did that come later? Para like definitely parallel. Like my sister is 12 years older than me and she was a punk when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. So I had my mum and dad's influence of like, you know, the, the Motown and, you know, and, and the Stones and the Beatles and things like that. My dad ran clubs in the sixties. Um, he ran a club in, in, um, uh, off Carnaby Street called The Bag of Nails and um, Jimi God, Hendrix right. played his first UK show there and you know the oh, people awesome. to hang out and you know um, 
God, Eric Burden and the animals and, you know, Clapton and stuff, they all hung out there. So it was always kind of like in my, <clears throat> in my periphery, I guess you could say, the music stuff. Um, my sister worked at the Astoria in the 80s as well. Um, oh, cool. My godfather, John Gunnell, used to own it. So, you know, I have this kind of like lineage, I guess you could say, like, you know, um, and, um, the, but the rock stuff was like, I was, I mean, I was a massive Bross fan, right? <laughs> <laughs> I any, like, good, any good smash hits reader has to be right? <laughs> yeah. on the block like I loved or I mean I love Michael Jackson so like you know all that kind of stuff was like huge but at the same time I was listening to The Cure and Susie and the Banshees and then WA <laughs> and two live crew so it was a, I had this huge very strange melting pot of, of music nice and eclectic. yeah and, and a lot of prints so it was just like you know, this real scatterbrained kind of, oh, I like that, I like that, I like that. So when I started at East West, um, you know, at that point I was like mega into the hip hop stuff <clears throat> and I hadn't really got into the grunge kind of era really. Um, not that it, it passed me by, I just, I thought Nirvana were cool and whatever, but it wasn't like my favourite. But then I kind of discovered like, um, you know, at the time I loved Jane's Addiction. So I sort of came in that way, if you know what I mean. And then at East West, they had um, Stone Temple Pilots. And um, and I, you know, listened to that record because the label were working it. And I was like, man, this is really cool. So of those bands, of the Pearl Jams and the Nirvanas and stuff, um, Stone Temple Pilots were like my favourite band of that kind of era. And then kind of from there, <clears throat> you know, I moved over to Warner's. I got a job as a press assistant when I was 17. I actually got it on my 17th birthday. Oh, was that through like in today's terms like an application process or or was that like another working your way through the internship well, route or well I was I was in the I was doing the internship obviously at the other label which is a sister mm. label they're like across the street from each other yeah. and um the press assistant job came up and my boss who was the head of promotions recommended me to Barbara Sharon who is an absolute legend um, yeah, and I went and had my interview with BC and, um, and thankfully she took a chance on a, on a 17 year old kid or a 16 year old kid as I was at that point. And she gave me my start, you know, I'm forever indebted to her. Like she really showed me the way, you know. Was Barbara doing like all the Madonna campaigns yeah. and stuff like that at that time? Yeah, yeah. Madonna, R.E.M., Rod Stewart, Elvis Costello, like you name it. Like, you know, she had such a massive legendary roster of artists that she worked and then she was you know she was our guiding light too you know and and teaching us the ways you know she was my obi-wan you know <laughs> can, can, can we can we can we uh, uh trouble you for one uh barbara Sharon piece of pr advice if there is such a thing that you can pass <laughs> on to our listeners and perhaps even oh. me and Haley steal oh um, I've stitched you up, haven't I, with a hard question? A little bit. Little bit. <laughs> come back to it if you want. You know, yeah, I think, I think like, you know, working for Barbara, like, you know, you, you get thrown in at the deep end, you know, and it is a little bit of sink or swim, you know. Um, but she's, she was very much like you, you kind of got to learn on the job a little bit, you know. It's like it's not really something you can learn. I mean, it is, but, like, you know, you can go through the – the motions of like, this is how to do a press campaign, blah, blah, blah. But until you actually do it, you know, it's, it's just a very different kettle of fish than going, oh, if I did a press campaign for this band, I would do this, this, and this. 
But then when you're actually going out and like making the calls and doing the emails and going out for lunch or taking someone for a, a coffee or whatever to get to know them, like it's, it's just really different. I think the thing is, is like be as personable as you can um, and be honest, you know? Yeah. I, think, I think honesty is like the best policy. Like you start drowning yourself in a web of lies, like you'll never get out of it. And, you know, you won't, um, you won't keep that integrity that you really should have at all times. Yeah, it's got, it's got to be like the number one sort of trait that all lovely and successful people I've met in music share. It's just that authenticity and stuff. I mean, I know Hayley wants to uh, interrogate you about uh, your early days at Warner Brothers, but can I, I, this is just something that I, I'm really interested to know the answer to, but to what degree does intuition play a role in what you do? Massive. Not just from the job itself, but from picking your artists, mm. you know, and, um, you know, I'm very lucky in, you know, working, having my own company that I can pick and choose the bands that I work with. And I always said that I would never work with a band I don't like personally and that I'm not enthused by um, and that aren't nice people um, because unfortunately I had enough of that at Warner Brothers to last a lifetime. So I was like, you know what, why should I work my ass off for your band and you treat me like a piece of shit, <laughs> you know? I was just like, what's the point? Why, you know, why should I, why should I help you if you're just going to be horrible? Like, so, so once I left there and, you know, started my own company, I was like, right, you know, no dicks allowed. <laughs> Good role. <laughs> Work hard Quite literally, as you are all, as a, an all-female team, absolutely zero dicks, so. <laughs> <laughs> should, should we maybe close chapter uno with, uh, with uh, uh, Emma's first pick, uh, tracks wise um so i because it was really like my starting blocks i chose um who am i what's my name snoop doggy dog because it's an absolute jam even 28 years later this whole record's brilliant Thanks so much for picking that tune, Em. It was great to hear it again. Love that album. Um, but, you know, maybe pivoting over to the old rock and rollage. Um, when you were at Warner Brothers, I guess one of the first albums you would have been involved with uh, would have been Dookie by Green Day. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I was still kind of, a, you know, a junior publicist at that point. <clears throat> and uh, Lawrence did their press just as Dookie was kind of like coming in. But they were really young, so when they, and it was weird because obviously it exploded in the States by that point, and um, they came in for promo, and um, they just came straight over to me, and because I guess, like, you know, I was wearing, like, you know, Vans and, you know, just kind of a, a independent trucks, like, T-shirt or something. I don't know. I can't remember exactly what I was wearing that day, <clears throat> but I remember them coming over and just being like, hey, and they we all just kind of bonded very quickly, so... You know, so I was kind of helping Lawrence on that campaign. Um, and then our kind of relate relationship kind of grew from there and then through various records. You know, I worked with them from um, from Dookie through to American Idiot. Yeah, that's a great you know, one. Right. About 10 years. So, um, you know, and the and the ups and downs of Green Day, really, you know. Um, you know, they were, they were huge. And then 
you know, various records along the way. Um, and then it came up to American Idiot. Um, and it was, yeah, it was an interesting situation because it was kind of like, you know, no one really cared. Yeah. <laughs> the label. I remember it. I remember that. that, you know? that and I, yeah, and I was very much like, you know, this is going to be the return of Green Day. This is such an important record. And, you know, and I was you're working my ass off. And, and lo and behold, you know, American Idiot was one of the biggest records they ever released, you know. Um, For a lot of people, I think it's the definitive one. Yeah. A certain yeah. generation. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah sure. Again, just I'm just interested to know, was there a little bit of latency between what would happen in the UK with Green Day and what was going on in the States? Because I seem to have a memory of um, the beginning of the American Idiot campaign being the Reading performance they did. But am I right there? Like they, they, they did like a kind of, maybe I'm wrong, but I, th I think they did a show and everyone was like, whoa, that was amazing. Kind of like all new songs, they looked different, you know, kind of in good shape and stuff. And then it seemed like it just started to catch fire over here. But that might just be me as a music fan, just kind of I, picking yeah, up on stuff like this. I think we'd already started the campaign at that point. Because um, I think it was, you know, it was during the election, um, you know, because, um, you know, they put we put out the single American Idiot and and that just kind of, you know, People just jumped on that, you know, with the, the election. And um, and also just the fact that the record was like this incredible, like, rock opera, you know. Um, and it was like a musical almost, you know. And you go through the journey of the record. Um, and it's, uh, it's a, I mean, obviously now it is a musical, um, evidently. But, um, you know, I don't think anyone expected that of them, you know, because it was all just kind of like, you know, dick and fart jokes for, for the most part, you know? Um, you know, and it was just like, oh, it's Green Day, they're all goofy and, you know, what have you. And, you know, and you think about all those songs throughout their career that, like, and you think, like, oh, you know, yeah, I kind of like Green Day. And then you go back and you listen to, you know, songs on every record. You're just like, oh, shit, this, oh, yeah, this is great. Oh, my God, yeah, this one, this is awesome, you know? like, And then you realise how many hits they had, like, you know, yeah. from basket base to uh, King for a Day or, you know, like there's so many hitching a ride, like there's so many songs like all the way through that if you put on a greatest, you know, the Green Day super hits now, you'd just be like banger, 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 you know, like, you know, they're such an important band in, you know, you know, in this generation really, you know, they're, yeah. they're, they're good fun. Yeah, there's like they're a... In my in my youth, just to share this one because it was it was to it totally backs up what you were saying. I think it was like in the middle of Britpop, uh, there was like I think it was V ninety eight maybe or maybe V ninety seven yeah. around Nimrod time, yeah. and like it, it was okay. just oh yeah cool. I mean, I was, that's one of my <laughs> gigs. I was I think I was about fucking eleven or something. But um, anyway, we kind of <laughs> they came on like in the middle of you know total like Britpop fury and all that, wasn't it? And uh, by the end of the gig, literally everyone was like, that's the greatest gig I've ever seen. Just like they had like people on stage, super soakers. He was wearing like a thong at one point. Uh, oh, and just like kind of like teaching the crowd, the tunes and like everyone was crowd surfing. I was like, this is amazing. But it was kind of like they couldn't have been more out of step really with what was going on. But it's still connected in this huge way, the showmanship of it, I suppose. Um, yeah, I remember that that show in particular was like, was super fun because um, after the show, because they, I guess they played like, you know, late afternoon. They yeah. weren't the headline. No, it's like, and, off, um, 
Yeah, and then um, we were all just hanging out because I was catch I was literally getting a ride back to London with them, and um, Trey and I stole a golf cart. <laughs> he had a key at that time. There was like a universal key for for golf carts, right? He's like, "Come on, let's go." I was like, "All right." So we get in this golf cart and we're like driving around and then we go down this one bit and it takes us right out into the crowd. And at that point he had bright green hair. So you couldn't miss him, you know? And then it was like, oh shit. He's like, you know, and then like loads of people saw and like came like stampeding like to come over to him. And he's like, quick, drive, drive, drive. And he stood on the back, stood on the back of the thing. And he like opened his arms like this. He's like, I'm the king of the world. <laughs> I remember like trying to quickly get back into this gate. And then, and then, um, and then James Brown was playing uh, yeah. that night right. as well. And we took the golf cart, went round to the back of the stage and we stood there and they had this, they had a red carpet rolled out, right? For James Brown. I'm not kidding. Red carpet from like wherever his like buggy was going to pull up to, you know, up the stairs of the stage and then onto the stage. And we just stood there like waiting for him to come on the stage and we watched him roll up, walk down that red carpet. And it was like the best time. We were like, yeah, this is the coolest. And then we just went into the crowd and like, um, you know, Billy and um, and Mike and various crew people all came and like joined us. And we all just had this massive, like James Brown dance party. And it was the best time ever. Like I remember that that day so fondly and uh, just thinking about like those fun experiences and like, and what a great show that was. Like it really was like, I know that you were a lot younger, but yeah, what a day. That was super cool. I think I was like 19 or something at that point, but. Oh, but yeah, it's got heavy like James Brown. I mean, wow just even see see him perform but <laughs> at the time i just i'd only just seen that eddie murphy sketch oh, <laughs> it's just like a great impression <laughs> i just had it in my head all the way performance oh, <laughs> man, man, we're getting paid <laughs> it's just amazing <laughs> uh, any, anyway i digress so um hill them all uh take over by all please please <laughs> another hill pun <laughs> so you touched on this um, earlier, so I think my probably my favourite quote of this show is going to be no dicks. So no dicks allowed. <laughs> I'll get my coat. Yeah, yeah, if you could. Um, so, <laughs> but so just thinking back, so working with, um, when you sort of cut your teeth at Warner Brothers, so working with Barbara, obviously mm -hmm. a strong woman in the industry, but she kind of broke through what in like, early 70s so just as sort of women's lib was sort of just trying to like kind of kick in wasn't it really quite a yeah. liberated time sure. yeah I mean BC you know she used to work for um sounds and she was a writer and um you know she she wrote a book about um Keith Richards and you know was yeah. kind of in that camp for a long time and then from there she would befriended um you know Moira Bellis who is her partner now at, um, at NBC but Moira was the head of Warner Bros in the UK. And I guess that, you know, um, I may not be getting this 100% right, so forgive me if I'm wrong, but but uh, Moira <clears throat> want, uh, needed a, a press officer at the office and, you know, Barbara was like, oh, I'll give it a go. Um, and then her kind of career started from there and, like, you know, she started with Madonna, like, straight away, you know? Um, so Barbara's career just kind of progressed and then she was the director of press at Warner and... And then she left 
Moira left at the same time and that's how they where they set up NBC and obviously they you know took the roster and continued to do you know amazing eyes like you know Foo Fighters you know and uh, Warners were changing we merged with London Records um you know and things were different and BC did ask me to go with her um um and you know she's like you know what do you think and at that time I just started working with Linkin Park and um and I believed in that band so much, you know, I was just like, I'm flattered, but I think I'm going to ride this out because I feel like this band are going to do something, you know, yeah. <laughs> the rest is history, as they say, yeah. but like, you know, like I got those demos for, you know, because by that point I'd already started working, you know, uh, you know, various bands. I was doing a lot of rock stuff, um, you know, and, uh, and I had a good ear for that kind of thing, you know. I kind of knew what would work and what what wouldn't. You know, we used to get sent all the records from the states, and then the international department would decide which ones would work. So when I would get everything through, I'd look through the press shots, and I'd be like, "Oh, is that Deftones? Oh, they're cool. Like, you know, let's do them." So you know, that all you know started and went very well, thank God. Um, and then it was things like Static X, you know, and I kind of look at. I got the press shots through and I was like, who is this band? You know, and then I'd try and I'd find like the the demos and the things that we got sent through on the pouch. And um, you know, I listened to Wisconsin Death Trip and I was like, we have to put this record out because this is amazing. And thankfully, the head of international was like, Oh yeah, like we'll totally do this one, like, you know, and run with it. So with Lincoln Park, it was a similar thing where, you know, I got sent like the, you know, five tracks, you know, um, from Hybrid Theory. And I listened to it and I was like, this is going to change everything. And I went into my MD, John Reed, who's now at Live Nation. Um, and I was like, this band. And he was like, you do your thing, we'll catch up. You know, so by that point, um, I was talking to Krang and I was saying like, you know, this band is, you know, it's going to blow up, you know, and like the new metal thing had kind of kind of started you know it was Papa Roach and Corn and Deftones and you know I don't want to throw Deftones in that new metal thing but at the time unfortunately they were lumped in all of that as much as they were much much bigger than that um but um you know this record came along and you know just their image and the videos and just the mixing of the you know the hip-hop and the and the metal stuff and Chester's voice and it was just like something really special so I spoke to Krang, um, you know, and I was like, you know, let's go big because this band are going to change everything. So they decided to put them on the cover before anyone had written a word about them because they believed in it too. Um, And um, we also changed the way we, uh, labels did showcases at that point because up until that point, a band would like sign to a label, they would do a showcase. So they would go and play to all industry people, you know, you know, you know what these things are like, but just for, for your listeners who may not know, but they'd go and play like half an hour set in a room full of music industry schmoozers who were there for the free drinks and, you know, hang out. Um, so I said for this one, why don't we get kids in the room? So we, we did a competition with Kerrang. We gave away 200 tickets. I'm so glad it worked because if it hadn't have been fucking disaster um, <laughs> so we, we were at the Yulu uh, sorry not Yulu the um, King's College um, and um, we had all the kids kids you know downstairs and then all the media people upstairs on the balcony 
So the band can actually play to an audience and play to a, a, you know, some, a crowd. And we had a couple of singles out by that point, I think. Uh, maybe like One Step Closer just come out or something like that. And, um, and there was some excitement. And they did this show and they were amazing. And from there, it just went, you know, and they became massive. Um, so that was, that was a big deal for me. Because so that, that year was insane because we had White Pony out um, as well, you know. Um, and that was, you know, by that point, Deftones were already, already a big band, you know. Yeah. Um, so, that, so that was an ongoing thing um, with, with Deftones and their trajectory was also huge and super exciting. And then, you know, Linkin Park kind of came along and it just kind of really opened up the scene, mm -hmm. you know. Um, it kind of took them, I think, um, and Papa Roach to do that kind of MTV style. Like it just really blew up from there and like went really mainstream. And then there were other bands that kind of followed suit and got big because they were kind of lumped in, if you know what I mean, you know? Um, but if you look at bands around that time and just like what an exciting time that was for, for metal as well, um, you know, from, you know, from Linkin Park and Deftones to to Corn to Machine Head to oh my God, like you know, like Slipknot, like you know, all these bands that were coming through that were just system of a down, like holy shit, like what a great band now. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that it was just a really exciting, exciting time to to be in that whole the industry, you know. Yeah, it's lovely when there's like a convergence of like, you know, like I experienced it a little bit with Britpop in a much less exciting way, but like it, there was, it was an all day buffet, you eat as much as you want, there was a band for everyone, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yes, yeah, for sure. A little bit like that kind of, um, yeah, as, as the new metal thing came through, I remember like lots of friends around me were kind of looking stranger and stranger and wearing different corn t-shirts you know kind of all sorts of things that and everyone was doing it once and then you had like kind of Marilyn Manson's over in another corner kind of and that thing's happening as well and yeah I guess uh to bring it back to smash hits you know it's nothing never more exciting when you just spoil for choice right yeah well I think like getting like Lincoln Park and A like obviously you know I, I work with A oh, um, yeah. on the hybrid theory record and hybrid theory sorry a hi-fi serious record and like Getting those bands in Smash Hits was like a massive thing for me. Yes, I also like. Don't get don't get it wrong. Like you know, for all the cool bands I worked at Warner's, there was a lot of shit that I worked too. You know, like you know stuff that you would just be like, really okay. You know, like you know, I had to work a lot of like you know kind of subpar pop records that were not good. I'm not going to mention band names here because then I'm then I'm sagging people off. But like. <laughs> you know, so I still had to do, I had to do a real mixture of things. Like, so I wasn't just doing metal stuff. I was also doing, you know, this pop stuff I was mentioning. But then, like, Aha or William Orbit or, you know, Jonathan Richman or Bootsy Collins or, you know, I had a real eclectic yeah. roster at, at Warner. Awesome. So it wasn't just the metal stuff. And then I did all the soundtracks too, which was really fun. Oh, so any, 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 any that come to mind as a, as oh, a So many, like... Um, all the Kill Bill um, oh, wow. soundtracks. Oh, wow. And we got to do some stuff with Tarantino as well because he agreed to do some interviews because he curates all the all the um, soundtracks for his movies. Um, he's a, Did you do it with one of the guys from Wu-Tang? Um, that was... Oh, I can't remember what record that... Um, 
he was on some some part of it yeah um but you know i did those i did oh my god all lord of the rings uh, all the matrix soundtracks which were really exciting to do because we got to see the movie before it came out and before anyone knew anything about it we went to a screening and came out of that place and the world looked different Oh man, I just so the uh, Rage Against the Machine tune at the oh, end. Man. I mean, if any 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 rock fan, just when that kicked in cinema, it's like, oh fuck, yeah, <laughs> massive. Yeah, you come out of that cinema, and then we came out of the screening, and I'd taken a few journalists because obviously the, the soundtrack had a lot of rock and metal stuff on it. And we came out, and our phones rang because we'd had them off, obviously. You know, in those days where it was all like the cheap phones, that there were giant bricks still, you know. <laughs> but we all just kind of looked at our phones and went, uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Freaked out. Yeah. Tons of soundtracks. And then, you know, I did all like the Oceans, uh, Oceans 11, 12, 13. So, yeah, so I did a whole lot of that stuff too, which was great because then, because I love film too. So that was a really lovely way of me to dip my finger in that pond, you know. Um, so yeah, it was, you know, Warner's was a, was a great time. Um, I worked there for, I think it was like 13 years in the end, wow. um, before I decided to jump ship and start my own thing. You know? So Thanks so much for sharing all that, Em. Um, probably a good time to pick another tune. Um, and I believe you've picked a Deftones tune. I wonder if uh, you could sort of tell us a little bit about uh, why you picked this one. I have, okay. So, I mean, everyone's expecting me to pick something off White Pony <laughs> because it's such a seminal record. Um, but it's not my favourite Deftones record. And, uh, you know, I've worked with them since day one. Um, and I'm actually going, this will be my 25th year with them, which is Yowza. insane. Um, but I've chosen Diamond Eyes from Diamond Eyes um, because that's my favourite Deftones record. Wicked choice, Em. Thank you very much. One of my faves as well. Um, it probably leads nicely into sort of finding out a bit more of like your transition then, I guess, because obviously you've, you've touched on, you left Warners um, and you've worked with, you know, Deftones from, from day one. And so maybe sharing a little bit of, of that with us about sort of your work with them and, and moving into your own company. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, I kind of got to a point where I I didn't feel like it was about artist development anymore, working at a major. And I and I really love that process uh, and that part of my job. Um, and I felt like everything was just about units and how many things you're going to shift. There was no real, like, I don't know, imagination going into things. And I kind of hit, like, 2006, I think, was kind of a big turning point for me. Um, I was working a lot of big records. Um, and no one gave a shit. And that kind of like just sort of made me feel kind of sad about the whole thing, you know? And I thought, well, maybe I'll stop doing this. And I wanted to go and be a tour manager. <laughs> so my boyfriend at the time was driving bands and, um, and I kind of had this idea of like, you know, why don't we start a touring company and like you can drive in tech and I can tour manage and blah, blah, blah. blah. Right, had this like, you know, pipe dream. And then there were redundancies at Warner's and 
we didn't need to lose anyone in our department. But I was like, if I'm ever going to get out of here with some money in my pocket, now's the time to do it. So I stuck my hand up for voluntary. My boss and RMD, I was quarter marshal at the time, was like, don't go. And I was like, I'm kind of done. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and they were like, okay, well, you know, they looked after me. Um, and I was like, you know, I'll probably just do some indie press for a while just until I figure out the touring thing. And they were like, cool, we'll put you on retainer. You can take your bands and la la la, which was great. So the day I announced to all the managers and, you know, sent an email around to everyone just being like, you know, I'm leaving, I'm setting up my own company and um, this will be my roster and, you know, hope to speak to you soon or whatever it was. That afternoon, um, I took on Henry Rollins, <laughs> Parkway Drive, and The Living End, again, who I'd actually worked with them when they were signed to Warners and they left and they were putting a record out on uh, Dead Cheese Records, actually. And um, so I spoke to Eugene and, and Miles and, and did that record for them. So that day I was like, this might work out. You know, if the touring thing doesn't happen, this might be all right, you know. And Henry was like a huge one for me because I've been such a huge fan for a long time. And his manager managed another band I did press for. And he was just, and every time Henry was in town, we'd you know, go to the show, we'd have coffee, you know, we got on very well. So he was just like, Henry needs a new publicist. Do you want the job? I was like, yeah. <laughs> so I've been Henry's <laughs> publicist for nearly 15 years now. And, um, so, you know, that was like a big thing for me. I was like, okay. And then it ended up being that um, my boyfriend at the time, Ian, he, um, he was driving bands and I started working with the Gaslight Anthem and Ian was driving them when they came here on tour. So he was out with them. That was going really well. It just ended up being that they just kind of took him <laughs> and he ended up being in the band eventually. Um, and he did a horrible Crows record with Brian and, and what have you, and, you know, did really well. So it just kind of happened that, you know, I wasn't supposed to leave the publicity game, you know, and, and he went on to, you know, be in a band, be in the band and what have you. Um, but, you know, it, it was never my intention to, to see, you know, see another 14 years plus in PR and, and it's ended up being that way. And I think it's just that kind of, you know, leaving Warners, taking my bands with me, who stuck with me, which was great. And I, that shows loyalty on both sides, you know, and now here we are. And it's like, you know, 2021, I've now been an independent publicist longer than I was ever at Warners, which is insane to me because that still feels like it was yesterday. Um, you know, and our roster of bands is, is incredible, you know, um, and thankful that I still get to work with bands like Deftones, you know, like I say, who I've been with since the beginning through the ups and downs, um, you know, through Chi passing, um, their bass player Chi passed in a, in a horrible car accident and seeing them really kind of hitting rock bottom and, and reviving themselves and coming back and being a, just, you know, being a stronger band, you know, um, like I was saying, Diamond Eyes, it's my favorite Deftones record. Um, everyone says White Pony is their favorite Deftones record. I call bullshit on that. 
um because i think that a lot of people you know <laughs> haven't listened to every record and like don't get me wrong i love it i love it but for me diamond eyes hands down best deftones record so you know, if you haven't listened to it it's now 11 years old but go and listen to it and you know the new record arms is amazing as well and it just goes to show that like they 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 are their own beast and they'll they just make music for themselves and i love that about them yeah so, yeah i mean uh, good energy gravitates towards good energy and uh, i'm sure that's why they've stuck with you all these years yeah. fantastic job on everyone you work with yeah, thanks um, you're good humans <laughs> indeed um I think, you know, we could talk forever, but I think our hour is just about up. And we we normally ask uh, the same question to everybody that comes on the show at the end. And it's a bit of an ominous one. But what excites you about the future in and outside of music? Um, oh, well, you know, that's, these jabs are exciting me for one. Uh, that's been a very common <laughs> topic. <Yeah. laughs> um, you know, actually getting my second one next week, so I'm stoked. Um, you know, I think there's some really amazing uh, new music coming um, out of out of left field sometimes, you know, um, with various bands to coming through. Um, I'm just excited to see kind of like where we go from here, you know, musically. I think um, with the pandemic, like there have been a lot of artists who've been, you know, forced to make records. And I think there'll be some amazing music coming to come out of this and a lot of creativity and, you know, just people are really having to change the way they do things. Um, and I think that will stick with us moving into this next kind of chapter of, you know, of life, really. Um, I think everyone has been changed by COVID um, for good or worse, you know, for better or worse. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm hearing, you know, there's some great records coming this year. There's something like, some things I can't talk about that I've heard. That, absolutely blown my mind and i'm so excited for for a couple of these records to come one in particular um i hope you've been taping them all in a locked room yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tape, tape. Um, well and we've had such a blast with you today um but really i think we need to send our listeners off with something that is kind of striking a chord with you at the moment like what is your kind of track from the present Okay, my my current, well, they're all my favourites. Don't get me wrong, I love all my bands. But I am particularly excited about Nova Twins right now. Um, I've been working with the girls for about 18 months and they're just this incredible bundle of energy of, you know, punk rock meets hip-hop meets, oh man, they're just this incredible amalgamation of a ton of different sounds. If you like... Um, Rage Against the Machine, Public Enemy, and Missy Elliott. Go and check out Nova Twins. They're amazing. And uh, the track that I would like you to play is um, Vortex. You in the vortex now, flip the switch to distort your sound. We are the underground, creeping in through the cold. 